Welcome everybody to this year's Leszek Karkowski Memorial Lecture, which commemorates probably the most distinguished Polish scholar in the 800-year history of this university. We're delighted this year to have Professor Marcy Shaw of Yale University and the Institute of Human Sciences in Vienna. Marcy Shaw is a really interesting combination of historian of Central and Eastern Europe, historian of ideas, and a very notable writer, uh, a combination which I think is very well fitted to commemorating Lesha Karkowski, who, who had all those components. Um, perhaps her best-known book is Caviar and Ashes, A Warsaw Generation's Life and Death in Marxism, 1918 to 1968, in which, of course, Lesha Karkowski mm -hmm. figures. Uh, notably, uh, a very remarkable piece of intellectual and political history. Uh, she's also the author of two uh, books which are a mixture of sort of history of the present, memoir, literary exploration, The Taste of Ashes, The Afterlife of Totalitarianism in Eastern Europe, and most recently, The Ukrainian Night, An Intimate History of Revolution, and she has a, her current research project is rather formidably entitled <laughs> Phenomenological Encounters, Scenes from Central Europe. So please join me in uh, welcoming Marcy Shaw to give this year's Karakovsky lecture. since it's Friday night and there must be more exciting social events going on at Oxford. Thank you very much to Tim Garnash for inviting me. Um, thank you to Hubert Chujewski, um, who just, just successfully defended his dissertation for creating a good reason to come to Oxford. Maybe we could all give Hubert a call. Thank you. You know, and, and I'd like to thank, of, of course, the person why we, who, for whom we are here, and the reason why we are here, who is not here with us, but hopefully will be here in spirit, which is Lesha Kalkowski. And it's a great honor for me to be giving a lecture in honor of one of my favorite thinkers and somebody who I never met in person. Um, louder? Okay, I'm sorry, I'm kind of losing my voice, but I'm gonna try to talk a little bit louder. Someone who I never met in person, but whose writing was with me throughout all the years I was learning about Eastern Europe and whose writing continues to be with me and from whom I continue to learn. And Kolkowski was a thinker who, as, as Hubert beautifully wrote about, was constantly in dialogue with not only his contemporaries and his friends and colleagues and opponents, but also with the dead um, and thinkers who were no longer alive, who were very much present in his thoughts. And I like to think of Kolkowski as somebody with whom I am constantly in dialogue, even though he is not here now. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to tell a story today. I mean, I'm a historian, so I'm more of a historian. I'm a storyteller than a philosopher. Um, but I'm going to try to tell a story, or rather a series of intersecting stories about Central European philosophy. And, and hopefully by the time I'm done in you know, 45 minutes or so, you'll have some sense of why all of these stories are relevant or why we're bothering to talk about them today at all or 
you know, am I just deluding myself into thinking that this makes any sense? Um, so because it's the 30th anniversary of 1989 this year, I want to start by going back to 1989. Um, and not to Poland, but to Prague, um, to Wenceslas Square, and to the slogan, you know, the truth prevails, um, or the truth will prevail. Um, and this was not a, a coincidental, you know, or thoughtless slogan um, when it came up at the time of the so-called Velvet Revolution in 1989. Um, Pravda vitezi, the truth prevails, or Pravda tsvitezi, the truth will prevail, depending on whether you use the perfective or the imperfective, um, picked up on a theme and a motif that had for a very long time been central in, in Czech philosophy. Um, and of course, many of you are familiar with Václav Havel's imperative to live in truth, that the most important thing is to live in truth. Um, and as it turned out, you know, that I, I, as a young person who was very captivated by the Velvet Revolution, by the playwright who was in prison and gets to go live in the beautiful castle, um, and by the slogan, the truth will prevail, which seemed very romantic, it turned out that, that truth, pravda, um, was the first word I ever learned in Czech. And Czech was the first Slavic language I learned. <laughs> uh, and it's not a coincidence that pravda was the first word that I learned in Czech, because I was, as a young student who was interested in the political philosophy of the dissidents, they talked about pravda you know, as, as if it were, you know, like a, like a pen, like something you could kind of hold and keep and put in your pocket as something that had some kind of real palpable, tangible quality to it. Um, in, in Polish, I would, I would say namatsalnosht. It had this, like, it had this tangibility. And it, it struck me um, because that's not the way I ever thought about truth in English. Now, in fact, I had never heard anyone in English talk about truth the way the Czech and Slovak dissidents I was meeting then talked about truth. This idea that it was something real, it was something solid, it was something tangible. Um, you know, and now, 30 years later, looking back, I mean, one of the reasons I'm pitching the lecture this way is because we're now kind of at a moment of, of post-truth. Um, and I want to return to this question of truth, um, what makes truth what it is, and, and how do we get to it? You know, and why do I think they had something interesting to say about this um, in East Central Europe? Um, so in, in order to deal with the problem of truth, um, this epistemological question, question about knowledge, we have to deal with this problem of the relationship between the self and the world, inner and outer, consciousness and being, subject and object. Um, this is what Kolokowski called you know, the epistemological question. How do you get from inner to outer, um, from consciousness to being? Um, and in, in February 1990, um, when he came to the United States to give his first speech as the first post-communist president of post-communist Czechoslovakia, Václav Havel stood before a joint meeting of the American Congress and said, consciousness precedes being, and not the other way around, as the Marxists claim. 
Now, for anyone who's been following the dialogues within the American Congress, this was obviously like a level of, <laughs> of conversation, probably then and especially now, completely unknown um, to our, our congressmen. And I don't think anybody knew what it meant, but it sounded very beautiful. Anyway, um, it's doubtful that anybody there remembered that passage in German ideology when Marx and Engel talk about the fact that being precedes consciousness. Um, for Marx, of course, being precedes consciousness because consciousness is simply derivative of your objective position in the socioeconomic structure of things. And when Havel said consciousness precedes being, he was making a moral statement about responsibility. You know, and that our responsibility for how we are thinking about the world and how we are approaching the world cannot simply be written off as mechanically derivative of our objective position within it. Um, but aside from the fact that this was a comment about responsibility, I started with this because I want to go back to the problem of consciousness and being, which has been a problem especially since um, Nietzsche killed off God. I know we, we have Hubert here who I think is, is, is going to try to bring back God, um, which would be a good thing perhaps. But once you don't have God to guarantee the relationship between consciousness and being, to guarantee that connection, you've got a big space to fill. Um, yeah, Hannah Arendt, in, in one of my favorite Arendt essays, of, of which there are many, in What is Existential Philosophy? What is Existential Philosophy? She actually blames not Nietzsche, but Kant. She blames Kant for severing that connection once and for all between being and consciousness that gave man a home in the world. Um, and she loves Kant. I think arguably she loves Kant. Nevertheless, she sees it as Kant's fault. Um, that leaves us without a place in the world, without any certainty to hold on to, without any kind of bridge. Because for Kant, of course, like the, the ding on Zeke, the thing itself was precisely what you couldn't get to. Being itself is what could never be reached. And, and Arendt blames Kant then for what she calls a kind of philosophy of melancholy, the kind of melancholic mood of modern philosophy um, that alienates man from the world because of this absence of the bridge between consciousness and being. And, and for Arendt, you know, like in a different way for Marx, like for Kafka, like for Heidegger, alienation was the great problem of, of modernity. Um, but this problem of truth, of, of how you kind of, the problem of the bridge, of how you get from consciousness to being, was arguably how modern philosophy gets started with this epistemological problem. And I, I want to put the epistemological problem on our heads because I'm going to come back in the end to the relationship between epistemology and ethics. Um, but for now, I, I want to go back um, to a friend of Masaryk's, a friend of Tomasz Masaryk's, Edmund Husserl. Um, Masaryk, of course, you know, like, like Havel and like Jan Hus, from whom he arguably takes it, you know, was very attached to this idea of, of the truth prevails. Um, and he and Husserl met at this moment in the late 1870s in Leipzig when both of them were becoming more and more concerned about the problem of certainty and the problem of reaching epistemological clarity. Um, 
And Husserl would come to feel more and more that he had, as he went from his student years to his doctoral student years to his young assistant years, to have this feeling of emptiness, this feeling that this ideal of epistemological clarity and certainty could never be reached. He wanted to overcome Kantian fatalism. He couldn't stand this kind of gaping abyss between consciousness, between, the, uh, between how we think and the thing in itself. Um, he was obsessed with this phrase that he takes from Descartes, and which he calls in German, Klarheit und Deutlichkeit, clarity and distinctiveness. Um, that there has to be a way to solve this problem of the bridge and reach epistemological clarity and distinctiveness. You know, and, and Arendt describes Husserl's method for resolving this problem as taking a kind of detour through the intentionality of consciousness. Um, Husserl's solution, which I'll sketch out very briefly, I don't personally think it works or is much of a solution, but, but he spends his whole life working on it, and he was arguably a much greater genius than I am, um, is that consciousness is not like, like a box. The structure of consciousness is one of intentionality, Intentionality is not like I intend to do my homework tonight or to go to the movies. Intentionality is like a magnet with a string. It's kind of reaching out to grab the world. Um, and Husserl has this idea that we can kind of nudge ourselves from the natural attitude in which we kind of blithely, unproblematically go around the world assuming it exists into a kind of higher self-reflective state that he calls the phenomenological attitude, um, arrived at by performing the phenomenological reduction, which means you take that problematic realist idealist question of does the world exist or is it just a projection of my consciousness, and you put it in brackets. Um, now the big question is how do you actually ever take away the brackets, but, but for now we just put it in brackets. You put it in brackets, you put it aside, and you concentrate on this exhaustive, intense description of the object as the intentionality of your consciousness has grabbed it. Um, and it involves performing an analysis from a first-person eye that is not exactly the same as the empirical eye. It's kind of an out Hegelian Althebung of the eye, so that the transcendental ego, the pure eye, is a kind of higher purified state in which everything that is particular, empirical, psychic, psychological, physical has been purged. Now, this disarticulation of the transcendental ego from the empirical ego seems to me to be insane. I mean, I think it's something that can be done in theory, but, but not in practice. Um, but he deeply believed it could work. You know, and that through this nudging of a higher state, and this phenomenological reduction and this analysis performed from the point of view of the transcendental ego, you could actually reach <coughs> epistemological clarity and, and absolute truth. Um, and, and Jan Patochka, who I'll talk about um, in, in a few minutes, I think describes this much better than Husserl himself does. Husserl, I think, was a, a terrible writer. And for, ironically, for someone who is obsessed with clarity and distinctiveness, he's basically incapable of writing a single clear sentence. Um, but, but Patochka, I think, describes this much more clearly, and he says that Husserl basically, okay, he never reopens the brackets so that you get to ask the question again of whether the world really exists, but he tries to think you to a point 
where you are so wrapped up in this intensive, exhaustive description of the world as it appears to the transcendental ego that you somehow lose the desire to kind of ask that question about whether it really exists. I mean, Toshka says, you know, this objective correlate remaining after the reduction, a correlate about which it no longer makes sense to ask about its existence or non-existence. Um, in any case, it, it seems to me as a historian and, and a non-philosopher um, that Husserl basically had this problem that, that in, in Polish there's a saying um, which goes, you can't dance at two weddings at once. Um, it's, I think it exists in a bunch of other languages, but not English. Husserl was one of uh, was a classic example of somebody who wanted to dance at two weddings at once. You know, he 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 wanted all the depth of subjectivity and all the certainty of objectivity, and he wanted it without giving it anything up. He had a dancing at two wedding problems. Um, okay, um, and then Heidegger comes along, who of course was was Husserl's student, um, and Heidegger's move, which I find much easier to understand than Husserl's move, you know. Husserl's move is a radicalization of the Kantian move, which says, okay, it, it, uh, you don't start with the subject and derive the object, and you don't start with the object and derive the subject. You start with the relationship. In the beginning is the relationship. The relationship with subject and object in some way precedes the parts. Intentionality is that bind that cannot be broken. Um, so you're always in that relationship. We're always connected to the world that way. Um, the relation precedes the parts. And Heidegger then comes along and says, okay, this whole question about how can we, how can we know that the world exists doesn't really make any sense because who could ask it aside from we ourselves, the kind of beings we are? And we are always already in the world. There's no place outside of the world to which we could step and look at the world as a subject separate from an object and ask the question of does it exist? Because we're always already inside. We're embedded, we're involved, we're engaged, we're concerned. You know, we're, we're, we're moving things around. We're always up to something. There's no, there's no Archimedean point. It's an illusion that there's some Archimedean point from which you could clearly take a subject disarticulated from the object. Um, so that, that's the Heideggerian move. And it also moves away from the, the transparency of Husserl's transcendental ego, which is both somehow the deepest, most important, intimate part of us, but also curiously generic, universal, purged of all personal qualities, and absolutely transparent. Um, in Heidegger, suddenly things start to get hidden. Um, okay, so Heidegger says that we're always already in the world. There's no outside, there's no escape, there's no Archimedean point. But most of the time in the world, we're not really living in truth, we're living inauthentically. We've kind of fallen into the world, we're kind of going along with other people and other things. And above all, we are trying to conceal from ourselves the reality of our existence, which is that we are always already moving towards our own death. So for Heidegger to live in truth, you've got to be kind of shaken you know, into what he calls authenticity, which involves facing the fact that we are always already moving towards our own death with eyes wide open. Now, it's, this is extremely unpleasant. It's a state of, of shakenness that brings us into a state of angst. Angst is not like fear that takes an object, like I'm afraid of snakes, you can take away the snakes and then it will go away. Um, angst doesn't have an object. 
You know, it, it's this kind of uneasiness in the face of human finitude. Oh. Okay, so this unheimlichkeit, this uncanniness, the fact that we can never be at home in the world. We, we are always going to feel alienated and we can never feel at home, not because of this subject-object gap, because I think there's really not that much of a gap for Heidegger if there's a gap at all, but because we're always already moving towards our own death. Okay. Um, so I'm sure you all know the story about you know, Heidegger being Husserl's star student, whom Husserl recommends as his successor at the University of Freiburg in the late 1920s. Um, Heidegger gets that position in 1930. The Nazis come to power. You know, Heidegger joins the Nazi party. He takes over the rectorship of the University of Freiburg. Um, under his rectorship, Husserl, as well as all other professors of non-Aryan descent, are expelled from the university and forbidden on his premises. Now, what does Husserl do? Husserl, it turns out, goes back to his desk um, and tries harder and harder to clarify the phenomenological reduction, which is this extremely abstruse you know, philosophical <laughs> procedure that seems to me can work in theory but not in practice. I don't know anyone who's ever purely performed the phenomenological reduction. Um, but the, I think the most moving testimony of his response are in his letters to his Polish student, who by then is a Polish professor, Roman Ingarden, with whom Husserl sends these letters saying, I, I have to, I just, I." I have to clarify, I have to make people see. I have to make people see that yes, it can be done. That yes, there is a path to absolute truth and epistemological clarity. And if I could just get people to see that, then they would not be attracted to the kind of irrationalism that has led us to barbarism. Um, he then comes on the invitation of Jan Patochka and a few other colleagues to Prague in 1935 to give the lectures he can no longer deliver in Nazi Germany. Um, and there he talks about the fact that enlightenment reason has failed because it's proven too thin, too superficial. That the enlightenment understood reason and rationality as a leap into the world of objectivity. It decapitated the thinker. It decapitated the subject. Um, and that without a more robust grounding in the subject, enlightenment reason is never going to be deep enough to save us. And that that is precisely the reason why these irrationalist forces have led us to barbarism. We need, Husserl says, a deeper reason, a th thicker reason. We need to ground our ob objectivity in the deepest subjectivity. Um, and if we could do that, if people could just see that yes, we can, Husserl is kind of like the Obama figure, like yes, we can get to epistemological clarity and absolute truth, that would be the thing that would now save us from Nazism. And Garden later wrote, he says he absolutely believed that his philosophy would save the world. Now if you read Husserl's philosophy, you know, and you, know, you read through the sources on what's happening in Nazi Germany in the 1930s, the pathos of this is extraordinary. You know, Husserl's unable to articulate a single clear sentence. It's an extremely abstruse procedure. You know, there's, there's all this heavy philosophical language, some of which he's kind of invented and reinvented that makes no sense to most people. Um, and, and in the meantime, Hitler's taken power. But, but he really believes that if you can just see we could get to absolute truth, people will no longer be attracted to barbarism. Um, Lev Shestov, um, the, the Russian philosopher, 
who did not believe um, in, in reason or truth the same way Husserl did it all, but who was a very close friend of Husserl's, um, writes when Husserl dies um, in 1938, this very beautiful kind of eulogy to him, um, in which Shestov writes that for Husserl, it was always a kind of Kierkegaardian either or situation. Either, yes, we can, we can get to absolute truth and epistemological clarity, or it's the madhouse, or we resign ourselves to the loony bin. There's nothing in between. And so it's a kind of Pascalian wager in that sense. Like you've got to, you've got to stake yourself on truth. You have to believe that it can be done because the, the alternative is horrific. Um, and and Shestov, I think, Shestov articulates this much more beautifully than Husserl himself ever articulated this. Um, I mean, Shestov is just a much more literary writer. He also translates, as a kind of footnote, what Husserl calls evidence in German, which has no real good English translation. It gets translated as inner evidence or self-evidence or just evidence. It doesn't, make, it doesn't really make sense in German. It doesn't make even less sense in English. He translates it into Russian as očividnost. Um, it actually makes sense in Russian, this obviousness, like obviousness and like seeing to the eyes, um, which is really what a lot of phenomenology was about. In any case, okay, so that's that phenomenological tradition. Um, there was now another, another route to truth that Arendt also addresses in that same essay, What is Existential Philosophy? And that one led not through Husserl and Heidegger, but through Hegel. Um, and, and you see, that, you see that play out, I think, most movingly um, in the case of Georg Lukács, you know, who is, of course, becomes a Marxist at a certain point, but maybe more profoundly a Hegelian. And you see that story play out, especially beautifully in Mary Gluck's book on the young Lukács, in which she writes about how that distance between subject and object was not just an intellectual problem for him. It was a, a gap that he suffered over. It was a lack of wholeness that was painful. Um, and what Hegel then provides is less the idea of teleology, which is, I think, what we often associate he Hegel with, and more the idea of wholeness, of totality. Das war ist das Ganze, the true is the whole. Um, and for Lukács, um, it was the seduction of wholeness, the seduction of totality, that the thing that was special about Marxism was the point of view of the whole, that you couldn't understand one part in isolation from the others. Um, in, in history and class consciousness, Lukács writes, it's not the primacy of economic motives and historical explanation that constitutes a decisive difference between Marxism and bourgeois thought, but the point of view of totality the all-pervasive supremacy of the whole over the parts. The primacy of the category of totality is the bear of the principle of revolution in science. Um, so for a generation, and arguably for Kolkowski's generation, that truth of, of Hegel turned Marxism, turned communism, turned Stalinism, you know, is in some way realized in confrontation with Nazism. Um, and I think this is especially true in the case of his Czech contemporaries, born in the 20s, um, the Poles always say the betrayal at Yalta, the Czechs say the betrayal at Munich. Um, and that was when Western democracy sells out Czechoslovakia. Okay. Um, 
when the Stalinists do take power in Prague, Jan Patochka, who was one of Husserl's last students, um, Patochka went to Freiburg to study with Husserl and Heidegger in 1933. And he was in Freiburg in 1933 as a young Czech student born in 1907 when the Nazis took power. In 1948, now as, as a 41-year-old professor of philosophy, the Stalinists take power in Prague. And interestingly, Patochka responds exactly the way exactly the way that Husserl had responded in 1933. In fact, he even has the same desk. <laughs> As when Masaryk left Leipzig in 1877, he left Husserl his, maybe it was more like a podium, something like this, like kind of standing desk. Um, and in the 1930s, um, shortly before his death, Husserl gave Masaryk's desk to Patochka. <laughs> um, and when the Stalinists take power in Prague in 1948, Patochka retreats to his study, to his desk, and he rereads Marx, and he rereads Hegel, and he makes these notes in his diary, which again, which I found very moving when I read this. And he said, but, but it was a misunderstanding Marx misunderstands the problem of alienation. In fact, he, he presents the problem of alienation in such a way that, in fact, conceals that problem entirely. He's imagining that alienation, this is what Patochka is writing to himself, is something like a kind of illness, you know, something that can be cured through some kind of technical means, that it's possible to live without alienation. Um, that, that alienation is niedokonalos to jest niedokonanos, which can't really be translated, but it's, a, it's an imperfection in the sense of something not yet having been perfected, um, like an imperfect verb in the Slavic languages. You know, that alienation is an imperfection that still could yet be perfected. And Patochka said, but this is, this is a misunderstanding because alienation the fact that we live in alienation is not a lack of completeness. It's not an imperfection that can be cured. It's the fact that we are not ourselves, that man is not himself. Alienation, <coughs> Patochka writes, the fact that man is not at home in the world, that, that hurt, that wound that Marx wants to heal is irremediable. It cannot be healed. Alienation can never be healed. I'm going to jump ahead now just a little bit to the end of the Stalinist period, and we'll skip Stalinist terror, because it's Friday evening, you probably don't want too much Stalinist terror. Um, Stalin dies in 1953. Khrushchev gives his famous secret speech in 1956. For the Czech and the Slovak writers especially, I think more so than the Poles, it, it's a shock. Um, and they literally have no other language apart from Stalinist language at that time with which to critique Stalinism. And initially, when they have to kind of get together and talk after Khrushchev's secret speech, they say things like, listen, my generation, we grew up with Stalin's name. And my best friends, they went to their deaths in the Nazi camps with Stalin's name on, your li on their lips. Well, now you're telling me. Well, no, I'm not going to apologize. I'm not ashamed. Um, and how they eventually start to step back 
is through a confrontation of the phenomenological turned existentialist tradition with the Hegelian Marxist tradition. Um, and you go back to these questions, where is truth? Is it in the subject or is it in the object? Is it in consciousness you know, or is it in the world? Um, we go back to Heidegger's idea about authenticity and alienation and, and choice and the idea of taking hold of ourselves you know, and seeing if we can live in truth. Um, Heidegger really liked this word geworfenheit. We're kind of thrown into the world, our thrownness. Um, for Sartre, what was really important about geworfenheit was that we're thrown into the world and we are abandoned. We're abandoned by God because God does not exist. Therefore, we carry this unbearable responsibility because in the absence of God, there is no one else to create values or take responsibility for our choices outside of ourselves. Um, and, and Sartre's move was to say like, yes, you know, Dostoevsky was right. Um, if God is dead, then everything is permitted. Nietzsche was right, God is dead. The consequences must be interpreted as radically as possible if any compensation is to be made for the loss. And this confrontation of the Marxist-Hegelian tradition with all its historical determinism and totality, and now this kind of phenomenological turn existentialist tradition with its concern with the relationship between being and consciousness and choice, is going to lead to a discussion about responsibility and determinism. Um, and so the big question, and this is really where Kolkowski becomes one of the most important voices still as a very young man in Poland, is about responsibility in history and where is the border be between historical determinism you know, and individual agency. Um, and he will be one of the first and most articulate people in the 1950s to insist that moral decisions for the individual remain despite any kind of historical determinism we may believe in. That determinism does not absolve one of individual responsibility. And his Czech contemporary, Karl Kosick, will go back to trying to work out this relationship between the individual and history and say, it's like, it's basically like Heidegger says, we're always already thrown into the world, we're always already thrown into history. So we're not creating it ex nihilo. You know, there's something already there that we're interacting with, but we're also not passive objects that can be somehow disarticulated from history. We're always already involved. Um, we're involved and therefore we're responsible because we are part of history. And he then, Kosick in 1967, tells the story of a certain religious reformer, a parable. Um, this is obviously the 15th century religious reformer, Jan Hus, although Kosick doesn't mention his name who is advised by a theologian while in prison that when the ecclesiastical council comes to him, if the ecclesiastical council says, you have only one eye, he is obliged to acknowledge that the council is correct. And the imprisoned man replied, he knew by his own reason that he had two eyes and a denial of reason was a betrayal of conscience. the loss of a unity of reason and conscience, conscience leads then to nihilism. Um, so he's also, he's going back, he's, he's going back to Husserl's idea as well of reason, truth, and clarity, and a denial of that reason is a moral problem. It's not merely an epistemological problem. 
Um, so what Kosick and Kolokolsky share here is this kind of affirmation without abandoning historical determinism, an affirmation both of the reality you know, of, of historical determinism, but also responsibility of the individual as part of that movement of history, because we are participants in history. We're embedded in history. So it's a kind of interactive model, so to speak. Um, now, after 1968, after the anti-Zionist campaign in Poland, um, and then subsequently the, the Prague Spring, that was basically in, in Eastern Europe, you know, the end of Marxism. Communism goes on for another couple decades, as you well know, but Marxism as a kind of, as a vibrant intellectual choice and force, um, that's the beginning of the end. The truth of Marxism, of course, depended upon this Archimedean perspective prevented, provided by the end of history. You know, available, as Hegel says, once the owl of Minerva takes flight only with the coming of the dusk. Meaning is only retrospective. Yeah, Marx was very forward thinking, but actually for Hegel it was less about thinking forwards and more about thinking backwards. Meaning can only be seen in retrospect. Arendt, by the way, takes up this Hegelian position. She says, you know, the author is never, the, the actor is never the author of his or her own life story. It's only the historian looking back who can see what it was all about. Because the consequences of actions are, are infinite because of what she calls the boundlessness of human interrelatedness. You know, so to act is to set something in motion, the consequences of which can never be foreseen and could only even be glimpsed in retrospect, but never looking forwards, only looking backwards. Um, I, I, I want to now turn to, to another thinker um, and a student of both Kolkowski's um, and Patochka's, um, who's Krzysztof Michalski. He's of a much younger generation, born in, in 1948 and, and very sadly died too young. Um, he was a student of Kolokowski's at Warsaw University in 1968. After Kolokowski emigrates from Poland following the events of the anti-Zionist campaign, um, a, a mutual friend of Kolokowski's and Jan Patochka's sends Krzysztof Michalski to Prague to Jan Patochka to write his dissertation on Heidegger under the supervision of, of Jan Patochka, um, which happens largely through correspondence. And Michalski's question is coming out of, of Marxism and coming out of Hegelianism, can there be truth and meaning only in wholeness? Does the understanding of something presuppose finding some kind of unity? You know, is, is it only from the perspective of the whole that we can understand our world? And when, when the young Krzysztof Michalski writes to Jan Patochka, who is 40 years older, Patochka responds with comments about the special meaning of Heidegger's philosophy for our part of Europe for our Eastern Europe. And what brings the older philosopher and the younger philosopher together at that moment, um, and this is now the 1970s, is a shared understanding that Heidegger and the tradition he represents could be an antidote to what Miłosz calls the Hegelian bite. That perhaps the way out of Hegel is, is precisely through Heidegger. And for Michalski, Heidegger became the thinker who provided a point of departure for answering the questions that kept him awake at night. Yes, there could be meaning without totality, without an Archimedean point outside of history and outside of oneself. 
because Heidegger, like Hegel, was a profoundly historical thinker for whom meaning was only possible in time. Except that in, in Heidegger's philosophy, you didn't look at history from the outside as something already either completed or potentially to be completed. You looked at it from the inside. We're always already thrown into the world, into history, always already bound up in it, open to it in some ways. There's no place apart from the world to, to look at history from a distance and contemplate it because we're in the world you know, Heidegger taught us, not in the way a bird was in a cage or a cookie was in a jar, not in such a way that we could be taken out of it or extricated, um, not in such a way that we could in principle be detached. Uh, Michalski later writes that life and history do not go on independently of our participation like a carousel you can jump off or on at, at will. Um, and so the there was no point of view from outside of time and outside of history from which we could look at our own condition and relativize it because the time in which we were living had its own finality. We were the co-creators of meaning in this time. All of those meanings were fragile and open to change, but they were nonetheless deep and binding and real. They were the ones had we had and the ones we had to use. You know, meaning was possible, but not outside of ourselves, not above ourselves because everything around us was in some ways also our creation. We were co-creators of meaning in history, and we were therefore responsible. And Heidegger for Michalski was the philosopher of freedom, and of freedom as responsibility. Um, and it was understandable, Michalski wrote, that, that we long to disburden ourselves of this responsibility. You know, and this is something I think arguably he takes very largely, not just from Patochka and Heidegger, but, but also from Kowalkowski. This, we long to disburden ourselves of this responsibility. We long for the world as a garden, something that's orderly, that's secure, that's stable. Um, but there was no such world, and there is no such garden. Um, for lurking in every moment was the possibility of the end of a border, of the closing of the world as it is in the beginning of something new for which we will always be co-responsible. Um, okay. Um, one of the things that happened while Michalski and Patochka in the 1970s were having this correspondence about Heidegger is that Michalski, who had a kind of gift for persuading people to do things, tried to persuade Patochka to write down his thoughts about the philosophy of history. Um, Patochka eventually does this, um, writing up some lectures he had given in underground seminars in private apartments. Um, they're later, they circulate in Samizdat um, as heretical essays in the philosophy of history. The third one, called Does History Have a Meaning?, Michalski managed to translate into Polish and publish in the Catholic journal Znak um, in Krakow before that possibility of publication was, was shut down. And in that essay, Does History Have a Meaning? Patochka argues that history begins when meaning is shaken. Shaken the way that Heidegger feels we are shaken when we confront the truth of our condition, which is being towards death. When meaning is shaken, this shakenness is a problem. Um, it's the beginning of problematicity. It's the beginning of asking questions. For Patochka, prehistory is before we start asking questions. History begins when we start asking questions. This asking questions is what philosophy is. 
Accepting responsibility is about posing the question of meaning. And this shaking is good, Patochka says, because it pushes us to seek meaning, which is riskier, but ultimately more meaningful. The shaking is not impoverishing, it's enriching. Our instability, the fact that we can never be completely at home, that we have to search, doesn't completely alienate us from the world, but should throw us into the world to seek its truth. Um, Patoshka distinguishes here between having and seeking the truth. And he says that the thing itself, the thing that matters, the thing for which we bear responsibility, is the seeking. In some ways, the seeking, the search, is the thing itself. In Christmas, in December 1976, Patochka had his last underground apartment seminar um, about Heidegger's being in time. Kind of throughout a large part of the 70s, after he's thrown out of the university in, in the wake of the events of 1968, Patochka and his students read Heidegger's being in time in Patochka's apartment. They read it out loud in German. They translate out loud into Czech. They read it again and again and again. It's like Kozhev's famous seminar on phenomenology of spirit in Paris. You keep reading phenomenology of spirit. They kept reading being in time. Um, on January 1st, 1977, you know, Patochka emerges as one of the initial three spokespeople for the human rights petition, Charter 77. Very soon after that, the secret police come for him, as he had known they would. Um, He's an older man. He's in weak health. He does not survive the interrogations. He dies in March 1977. Um, the following year, Michalski's book on Heidegger is published in Poland, um, beginning with their shared conviction of the special meaning of Heidegger for Eastern Europe. Living in Poland, you know, Michalski wrote in the introduction, he felt as if Heidegger were speaking directly to him like the eyes in certain portraits which seem to be gazing at you wherever you may be. Heidegger was for me, Michalski wrote, the philosopher who was able to disclose the weight of each step of my life or yours. That same year, 1978, um, Václav Havel published, or didn't publish, I would say, he, he wrote um, on the encouragement of Adam Miknik an essay called The Power of the Powerless, which was also published in, in Samizdat in, in Polish, dedicated to Jan Patochka's memory. And in that essay, you have your ordinary green grocer, communist Czechoslovakia, late 1970s, who every day goes to his vegetable shop and in the window alongside the carrots and the onions, he puts the sign saying, workers of the world unite. And Havel says, why does he put the sign there? Is it his sincere, spontaneous desire to acquaint passers-by with his socialist enthusiasm. No, Havel says, of course not. He doesn't believe the sign. The passers-by don't believe the sign. Even the regime no longer believes the sign. Moreover, the regime knows that the people don't believe, and the people know that the regime knows that they know, and everybody knows that everybody knows, but everybody keeps going on pretending. And, and Havel says, well, well, what else can the green grocer do? I mean, the green grocer is powerless if he takes down the sign, if he stashes it at the bottom of a box of tomatoes. You know, somebody could inform on him. Um, you know, he could be questioned, he could be detained, his children could be denied access to education, so what can he do? And Havel says, well, the fact that 
all of these bad things might happen to the green grocer if he takes down his sign suggests that this hanging of the sign in which nobody believes anyway is actually paradoxically very important. In fact, if one day all the green grocers were to take down their signs, that would be the beginning of a revolution. Therefore, the green grocer is not so powerless after all because he is powerful, he is therefore responsible and also guilty for the green grocers who allow the game to go on in the first place. And Havel makes two philosophical points here. One, that the ontological reality of truth is proven by contrast with the ontological reality of lies. You know, the fact that you know that something is a lie, that there's a whole realm of life that is living a lie, makes you know that there is something called truth by contrast. The other point he's making is that the greengrocer's failure to live in truth is a moral failure. The greengrocer is guilty of what Sartre would call mauvaise foi, bad faith, meaning self-deception. The self-deception is not about his faith in communism. The greengrocer knows perfectly well he doesn't believe in communism. The bad faith is about his powerlessness. The greengrocer is deceiving himself into telling himself that he's powerless when in fact he is responsible. Um, thereby allowing the oppression to go on in the first place. Um, and I'm, I'm going to now finish up this discussion by going back to Kolkowski, who around the same time in the 1970s delivers a series of, a few years earlier, maybe 73, 74, you remember the year, um, delivers a series of lectures on Husserl at, at Yale University. Um, I, I love these lectures. It, in some ways, it's the, the clearest exposition of Husserl I, I think we have. Uh, and, and he addresses very directly Husserl's dancing at two wedding problems. And he says that, you know, Husserl, he admires Husserl. He says that Husserl wanted more passionately and dug deeper and tried harder to get to absolute truth and epistemological certainty than anybody else in modern philosophy. He dug deeper, he tried harder, he threw his whole being into it. Um, nevertheless, Kolokolsky said, Husserl fails. He fails because the problem of the bridge is insoluble. There is no bridge between consciousness and being. There's no, there's no way to get from inner to outer, from imminence to transcendence. If you start with imminence, you'll end with imminence. You know, without God, it can't be done. Um, if we start with the imminent world, Kowalkowski says, we'll end with the imminent world. The problem of the bridge is insoluble. There's no logical passage. Nevertheless, and here is the point that I think is particularly important to understand about dissident philosophy in Eastern Europe that might be worth remembering today. Nevertheless, Kowalkowski says, the moral imperative, even though the problem of the bridge is insoluble, is you bracket. You bracket the fact that that bridge can never be found and you keep looking. Because if you give up on truth, you've given up on ethics. Because epistemological questions are always already ethical questions. And it is morally impermissible to give up on truth. And the move is very, very close to what Patochka is talking about in that third heretical essay. The seeking is the thing itself. It's active. You know? And that activity is the activity of, of somebody who is responsible. Um, and so we kind of move through this arc, and I'll, I'll just say a couple words in conclusion, because I know you've been sitting for a long time and it's Friday night. We move through this arc of truth as subject, object, conscious, and being correspondence to a conversation about truth that's about the relationship between consciousness and being, but also about truth and lies and authenticity and inauthenticity. Um, 
it's an interrogation of what it means to be in the world um, that becomes very primordially historical. What comes in the middle is history. Um, and, and I want to just say a, a couple words in conclusion, perhaps, about why this phenomenological existentialist tradition takes a very different path in places like Poland and Czechoslovakia than it does in France. Because coming out of the same continental tradition in France, and in some ways responding to totalitarianism, you have a postmodernism that says there can never be any such thing as a stable truth, as a stable meaning, as a stable subject. In fact, the mere positing of those things is a risk of, of a future totalitarianism. That in fact, the imperative you know, to insist that truth is always self-undermining, always fragile and contingent, is what will stave off the absolutist claims that have landed us in totalitarianism in the 20th century. Um, you know, Derrida had this idea of the aporia, you know, the moment of the impasse where no meaning is possible. Um, where you have to give up on the ontological reality of truth because that is your defense, your critical sensibility to, to disarticulate yourself you know, and to resist totalitarianism, to resist the absolutist claims of grand narratives. And what happens in, in East Central Europe is a kind of different philosophical move that also rejects grand narratives but says that even after you have extricated yourself from Marxism as the last grand narrative and refused to go to any others, you still can't give up on truth. Um, the, fact that, the fact that truth involves subjectivity, that subjectivity can never be purged, does not relativize truth but grounds it. That a return to the subject is the thing that should ground truth as opposed to make it melt into air. This is very Husserlian in a way. You return to the subject, but that's with an idea that that's going to allow you to get to absolute truth and epistemological clarity, as opposed to an idea that going back into the subject relativizes everything until all that is solid melts into air. Um, the imperative is you need to posit an ontologically real subject and ontologically real truth. And the idea is that truth and subject are linked through responsibility. Truth is active. The moral imperative is to keep seeking, to keep searching. The fact that it's not some reified object out there to be caught and tossed around doesn't make it less real. And the seeking becomes the thing itself. But it is morally impermissible to give up. And that epistemological question and that epistemological faith has to be understood as a moral question. Okay, I'm, I'm going to end now in by um, trying to evoke a little bit of uh, both Lesha Kolokowski's voice and Krzysztof Michalski's voice. I'm going to end with a passage from an interview that Krzysztof Michalski gave to Tygodnik Polszeknik right after Lesha Kolokowski's death um, in 2009. And I... I, I fear my English translation will not completely capture the, the beauty of Krzysztof's sense of humor in Polish, um, but I've, I've tried my best here. Um, so this is Krzysztof telling, Krzysztof Michalski telling a story about Leszek Kolkowski. And he says, for many years, the Institute for the Wissenschaften von Menschen, which I oversee in Vienna, organized meetings of the outstanding scholars comprising its academic council at the Papal Summer Residence in Castel Gandolfo. Once in the 1980s, when we were returning to the hotel following one of the meeting's discussions, 
dominated by Paul Ricoeur and Emmanuel Levinas. Leszek, a member of our council from the very beginning, proposed that the name of the institute be changed to the Institute for the Science of Levinasism, Derridaism. <laughs> and he fell into a discussion with Krzysztof Pomian about the future program of such a reformed institute, a program that foresaw the creation of a department of dialectical Levinasism, Derridaism, a department of historical Levinasism, Derridaism, etc. To the amazement of the very serious German professors accompanying us, the discussion concluded in Russian. After returning to the hotel, Kolokovsky wrote in medieval Latin, a proposed papal bull, which among other things declared that, quote, the claim that not all French philosophers should be burned, unquote, was heretical, poorly formulated, and should be condemned. Later, we gave that bull to the Pope for authorization. But I won't say whether he signed or not. Thank you.